Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. All right. Well, here we go with another episode where I have the opportunity to chat with an accessibility practitioner. And today I am speaking with Ken Nakata. Hello, Ken. How are you today? Oh, pretty good. It's an awesome day up here in Seattle. Well, I'm in the uh, Seattle area as well, actually on uh, Vashon Island, which is near Blink's uh, Seattle headquarters. Oh, okay. I'm over by the University and Children's Hospital. All right, excellent. Well, I've uh, I've had the uh, opportunity to uh, teach on that campus part time for uh, many years, so it's always. Uh, but of course, that hasn't happened for a while with the pandemic. But hopefully, we'll get back to that again in the future. Yeah, hopefully. it's good to uh, have the opportunity to uh, chat with you, and uh, you know, a good place. Uh, uh, always a good place to start is. If you could just talk a little bit about the work that you're doing now. Well, at this very moment, I'm working on helping a county government with their self-evaluation under Title II of the ADA. But that's a little different from what I normally do. Most of the time, on a typical day like today, I would be working in uh, web accessibility and trying to help uh, typically a law firm um, understand web accessibility when their client just suddenly got sued for for having an inaccessible website. And uh, so uh, is uh, is this uh, your uh, personal uh, b business? Um, what are some of the things that typically go on for you with uh, with one of your clients? Yeah, so my company is Converge Accessibility and we're about two years old. We started right at the beginning of COVID, and my business partner, Jeff Singleton, and I have been doing this kind of work for the lab. However, I've been doing this kind of work for, gosh, the last 15 years, I want to say, we've been working together. Um, and for that work, we've mostly been doing web accessibility audits. We've been uh, also doing things like mobile app accessibility um, and sometimes we get into bigger picture stuff, like we've helped um, a number of companies develop their global accessibility standards. If they're, say, you know, one of these big companies like a, an HP or a Microsoft or uh, a company like that, that has a lot of product teams around the world, uh, we help them with their accessibility, although now they pretty much have it all in-house, so they've got their processes pretty much locked down. We sometimes just get involved in some of these really bigger, more interesting projects because we have a, well, I think one of the things that makes us unique is that we're, we have a, this perspective that combines my background from working at the Department of Justice and, poli and, and that work was doing lots of law and policy together with my business partner who comes from the more technical side of working at Microsoft and part of the um, accessible technology group there. 
Well, uh, there, there's some things you mentioned that I definitely uh, want to follow up with, but uh, you know, right now, uh, I want I'd like to get into one of the things that we always talk about in this program, which is uh, finding out how people uh, ended up getting to where they are today. Um, accessibility, uh, there's a lot of different paths where people find their way into it. So maybe reflect back on your own experiences of uh, work life or live, li live life. Where did it start for you where you start to, uh, to think about accessibility as something that was going to be a big part of your life? Well, it's all just pure serendipity <laughs> in my case. So I don't have a disability. And actually, in my family, no one in my family really has a disability. Um, so the way in which this, this got started, and it's just the way in which my career developed. Uh, I was working at a law firm in 1992, and my friend says, you've always wanted to be a civil rights attorney, right? And I said, absolutely. And they, he told me, well, you know, the ADA recently got passed, and they are probably looking for attorneys down there. And so I made some inquiries. There was no job posting at the time. And I just thought, okay, this is something I want to do. So I... I, I was very persistent in my in applying for a position and sent constant writing samples. That's one of the things you have to do if you're an attorney when you're applying for a job and uh, made, a, made connections to people. Well, I had some connections with people in the civil rights division at the Justice Department. And I ended up getting the job. And I think I was maybe the third or fourth attorney in the section. Uh, with this newly formed section that at that time was called the AXA, an Office on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we were actually a sub-office within one of the sections in the Justice Department in a kind of a lousy building in Washington, D.C. And we started there. And back then, we did everything. We did, you know, we answered the phone lines. We did our investigations. We did all the litigation. We answered the policy letters. And we were coming up with, on a blank slate, all the policies for the country on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And eventually, that section grew and became um, the disability rights section. But and then I think now it's, what, 50, maybe 75 attorneys. Um, and it's obviously got a much bigger scope in terms of what they have to do. But it was really exciting back in those days, basically doing everything. So for in the first half of my career, I was pretty much like one of the other attorneys. And I did my best. I did everything else, did everything else, the things that everybody else did. Um, after a few years, when Janet Reno came in, she said, well, we don't want attorneys answering the phone line. So they got a whole bunch of people to do that. And so I didn't have to do that, although I kind of missed doing that. And then during the second half of my career, um, Section 508 of the Rehab Act was amended. And that required that federal agencies had to make their technology accessible. And so... I jumped at that. Nobody else wanted to do it. And I was really surprised by that. But you got to remember, attorneys are pretty much Luddites. They don't want to deal with technology. And so I did. So I jumped at that. And that led me to actually, yeah, that's the thing I'm most known for. So I was, I was, uh, I had to do the surveys of the federal government 
Um, so I was surveying all the different agencies in the government about how they were doing, how they were managing their um, uh, their technology to make sure it was accessible. And I was um, leading this group of, of um, agency coordinators to try to develop best practices and try to make sure that the government's technology was accessible. And then I was also doing the stuff with trying to make the ADA policies align with the concepts of web accessibility. And then I left in 2004 and I became a consultant after that. And now I've just been mostly dealing with the stuff with web accessibility and digital accessibility that I had when during the second half of my career. But every now and then I get into one of these projects where I do the stuff in my first half of my career, like like this stuff that I'm doing for a self-evaluation for um, a local government. Well, uh, let me, uh, you, you cover a lot of things there. Let me just go back a little bit uh, because I find it really interesting, uh, you know, just historically as well. Um, so when you first got involved with uh, the ADA, I mean, what what was that like at the time? I, it, it must have seemed like there was just an enormous pool of things to look into or what, like, how did you prioritize what the, you know, the activities were that you would actually do in those early days? Yeah. So back then it was really complaint driven. So, you know, we had to, we had a, when under the ADA, an individual can file a private complaint with the Department of Justice, and we're supposed to go and look at it and investigate it, and you know, and if there's discriminatory behavior by the respondent, then we're supposed to take corrective action and potentially litigate against them. And it's really a matter back then of responding to the complaints that are coming in. And back then, I used to work on a lot of new construction and alterations cases. So that's something that we don't really get into in the web accessibility world so much because, well, there's no teeth to the to the requirements that they, that um, there's no teeth to the idea that you have to build your website to WCAG 2.1 um, and AA. Yes, that's what we tell people, but it does, it's not specifically spelled out in the regulations. It's, it's different than the building codes and things which traditionally have been very much more prescriptive and oh yeah exactly yeah and so for um in the building in the built environment yeah there's a very strict requirement that you have to comply with the justice department standards on exactly what your building has to look like and those are really easy cases i think because either you know either the what the um the doorway is uh, what tw thirty-two inches wide, or it's not. And if it isn't, then you get to sue about it. Um, and so it was pretty easy bringing those cases back then, and we just got a lot of them. And obviously, they were a high priority for us. And I think that that was really important because it created this awareness in the business community that. Oh my gosh, yeah, we really have to make sure that our new buildings and our alterations are accessible. So I think that that was that was definitely a high priority in the very, very beginning. And then after that, it it moved into other things. It moved and into it, these more subtle I think forms. Generally, of uh, oh, sorry. 
I think generally then it kind of worked because over time we did get, uh, you know, yeah, peers in the building, in the built out physical world that uh, standards are fairly well adhered to for the most part. For the most part. Yeah, there's still a surprising amount of construction out there that is inaccessible, but uh, some of it are uh, is relatively minor. Um, violations and some of them are not. I was really surprised by some of the things I've seen over the years. <laughs> well, the uh, then as you uh, came into the Section 508 work, uh, I I guess that was contemporaneous with uh, the work being done by the W3C with the WCAG guidelines and things, which helped to in, inform that. But uh, what what was that activity like? Uh, early on, uh, starting to uh, formulate how to address digital accessibility. Oh, that was just like starting with the ADA. It was writing on a whole new blank slate, and it's something exciting about doing that. There's, there are very there aren't that many opportunities that that kind of time just presents itself. You know, like when the ADA was passed. And people were struggling to figure things out. We yes, we had the regulations out there, but there were so many things that that were issues that had to be considered and and questions that came up. And it was really exciting as an attorney to be working in that early stages of things. Once things have set, they they're a little bit more boring. You just look up the answer and you make your argument. But when it's all new and you're coming up with guidance you have to think about well gosh you know is that really the right thing to do is that really too costly is that um is that really going to achieve the end result that we want to achieve which is trying to lower barriers or eliminate barriers uh for people with disabilities and uh so it's there's a lot of thought that goes into that kind of balance and that's that's fun uh, and so it was fun during the beginning of the ada and it was fun during the beginning of 508 too well uh, you i think you mentioned that the the section 508 work was uh subject to more interpretation maybe than uh, some of the legal re requirements about the physical world um i you know what was how did uh how did you approach those gray areas? Uh, what were the, you know, what were the places where you identified that uh, it was important to get involved in? And then how did that kind of move into a legal framework? Yeah, well, being a lawyer that knows that with a fair understanding of technology does make this a lot easier. So the, I, I think of it as, Web accessibility ultimately comes down to a very simple ADA requirement, which is effective communication. And so the question then becomes, well, what does that mean? So in the ADA, well, we have certain ways in which the technical assistance manuals that accompany the ADA um, regulations that were developed by the Justice Department, it they give examples of things that public entities and places of public accommodation have to do in order to make sure that their um, 
information is accessible. So they have to provide sign language interpreters. They have to provide CART if they're doing, say, a public event. They have to um, make sure that written communications are accessible by providing them in alternate formats. And so it, when we think about web accessibility, well, what does that look like? And really the best, because we're, because a web, because a web page is not a one-on-one -on -one kind of communication, we need to have a universal design standard for web accessibility that we can say, these are the things you should design your website to. And conveniently, that happens to be WCAG. Um, so we've got something that we can point to, and we've got a legal basis for saying it. We have to we, we use the effective communication requirement to get there. And the way in which I've always said it is that WCAG is really a safe harbor right now because there's no regulation that says you have to do it. You have to just provide effective communication. But if every settlement agreement out there that's issued by the Justice Department that uses web that in, that involves web accessibility always uses the WCAG standards as the standard that they're building to. And so if you are a web developer then and you build to that, ju the Justice Department doesn't go higher than that. So you are going to be, it's, it's effectively a safe harbor. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it, it, then exploring that maybe a little bit more, if, if we could, um, wait, when you're talking about it as uh, a safe harbor with your uh, with your clients. How does that how does that manifest itself in terms of uh, of their strategy? Is it uh, that they do things in a certain way that will essentially put them in that safe harbor? Um, I'm assuming that a lot of the people that you work with uh, don't really have an understanding, at least early on, of the technical underpinnings. And so how do they start to identify that they're in that they're starting to be in that safe place uh, legally? Oh, yeah. So. In well, I think that the way in which most consultants do this, that, you know, most of the consultants that are in my space, we pretty much all follow the same basic methodology. It all comes down to trying to, uh, we examine the website and we usually have a client walk us through their website. And the goal there is to try to find the type of content that they're typically putting up on a web page, Because on a website, people tend not to experiment that much and just say, oh, I've got it. I'm putting up a new web page today. I think I'm going to come up with some brand new content I've never placed on this web page before. I'm going to put up a new type of control or I'm going to put up a, a calendar date picker or I'm going to pick up a, you know, a three state checkbox or, you know, because I can. People tend not to do that. People tend to use the same design motifs that they've always used. They tend to use, if I've used a tab control for displaying tab, tabs and content and tabs, I'm probably going to do that not just on one page. I'm probably going to do it on a bunch of pages because it's just something that I'm used to and people are used to that. My, my visitors are used to seeing that. Or if I'm putting on videos, I'm probably going to make my videos probably pretty much look the same. 
And so it's not that hard to try to get representative samples of the type of content that people typically put up on their page. And so you can take a site that's quite complex and really boil it down to just a couple of different um, pages that includes that type of content and that all then and that also includes the templated content like the headers and the footers and the navigation panes and things like that and so that's basically what all of us consultants do we try to take this e-commerce site for instance with tens of thousands of products and different pages and boil it down to about you know 25 maybe 30 maybe 50 if it's a if you have like a if you're looking at the back end consumer, um, the um, login process for managing their accounts, if you get into that, yeah, there's a bunch more pages. But um, it really does bring it down to a, a, brings a site down to a very finite number of pages. Okay, once you identify the accessibility patterns that are problematic on that limited set, then the client can go and replicate that throughout the rest of their site. And so that makes it relatively easy. And for the time being, in the short term, that's really great because well, as they're building out new content, chances are they're going to still be using that same old designs. And so you can get you can actually get a lot of traction, a lot of you can go you can get a lot of mileage, not traction. You can get a lot of mileage out of that approach. And then you combine that with, you know, some automated testing and maybe a periodic accessibility review. And yeah, you're pretty good. <laughs> so until the next major design um, refresh comes along where all of a sudden you're starting from zero essentially when you you know bring out all new wireframes and just completely change the site, until that happens, you're pretty good for accessibility. So as long as you just keep doing that. So I think that that's really what I think that's the way in which most of our clients approach approach it. And I think that that's the way, yeah, I think most in general, most people approach it if they want um, to be thorough about it. Do you get questions about quote unquote certification? I know I run into that a lot with uh, organizations that aren't familiar with accessibility. Uh, they're kind of looking for something that maybe is the equivalent of a building code in the physical world, uh, which applies some official uh, uh, stamp of approval, we don't really have that in the in the digital space. Uh, how do you uh, how do you handle those types of conversations and 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 express the way for them to show that they're you know doing doing things in the right way? Well, you know as all lawyers are trained in how to avoid answers. Now, okay, seriously though, the way the way in which I answer that is by just pointing to the W3C site itself and saying there's a I forgot what page it's at, but basically in order to say that you are WCAG 2.0 or 2.1A or AA compliant, you have to meet all of the requirements on all of your pages on a site. And on a on a typical client site that has thousands of pages, there's practically no way that anybody can say that. And I think that that's one of the that's one of the major impetuses for um, so-called silver uh, WCAG 3.0 is to come up with a more 
uh, more realistic, I suppose, um, certification or not certification, a grading process for where what whether you're compliant or you're not compliant. Um, I don't know whether I agree with that effort, but you know it is that that's that really high bar that the W3C set in terms of every page has to fully comply with the standards basically makes it impossible for anybody to say that they fully comply with the standards and that they that they meet that bar. So um because websites are always changing. So well, that's what I, I tell them. Well, I yeah, th maybe if we could move into uh kind of more uh free thinking about uh the past and future. You've been involved in this for a long time, uh, kind of looking back on how things have evolved. Um, do you have any thoughts about um, areas that you think were like you're surprised that things have moved uh, uh, as, in a positive way as well as they have? And then the other side of it, are there some areas where you still see as uh, significant challenges for bringing accessibility into the world? Well, yeah. You know, it's no secret that I've been frustrated by the fact that the Justice Department, my old office, hasn't issued a update to the Title III and Title II regulations for web accessibility. Um, I think that that would go a really long way to improving awareness. I think that, and I think that if every business out there had something that they could definitely point to, then all the content managing management um, providers. Um, the WordPresses of the world, or the, uh, or in the case of um, state and local governments, the Civic Pluses of the world, would be would have a much stronger incentive to make sure that they make it really easy to make really compliant web pages. Um, so, I think that it the regulations would improve the tools that we use. It would improve the awareness. It would it just it would make things just generally better. In the short term, it may increase the number of lawsuits, but I guess you, they could take care of that by building in a phase-in period. But for the fact that it's 20 years later, and we're still talking about, uh, yeah, 20 years since I left, almost the Justice, um, almost 20 years since I left the Justice Department, and came up with the basic technical um, guidance for state and local governments. The fact that now they just issue new new guidance that says exactly the same thing says so says to me that really they haven't gotten anywhere on this. Um, and then there's the explosion of lawsuits, which are just being fueled by the inaction and in, the, the the vagueness of what Title Three entities have to do. So that's the that's the big one. I think another thing that. Another opportunity that's coming up is that we really, our society really hasn't still gotten to the point that the worlds of digital accessibility and the worlds of physical accessibility, built environment accessibility, have merged, so to speak. Yeah, you go to these conferences for on digital accessibility like CSUN or accessing higher ground, and you'll hear barely a mention of physical accessibility or traditional accessibility. You go to the ADA symposium um, or any other traditional built environment type of conference, and you mention web and digital accessibility, 
And generally people's eyes glaze over and they have no idea what you're talking about, which, and that's unfortunate because there's a much stronger framework in terms of accomplishing things in that built environment. And if that, if they were to merge, then I think that we'd end up having a lot better compliance. Like for instance, state and local governments have to have a Title II coordinator who's responsible for everything that that agency is doing in terms of accessibility. It's kind of like the one-stop shop for accessibility. And if and that person is also responsible for overseeing the planning for accessibility. And usually that doesn't include the website or the digital communications. And that's really too bad because if they were, then, you know, then they could they'd get extra budget for that. And they um, could plan much more intelligently for that. Uh, and the, the fact that, I, you know, I, as a consultant, I see a lot of RFPs that come out from state and local governments. And they come across my desk every day. And I can't tell you how many RFPs I see for website redesigns that either don't mention accessibility, or if they do mention accessibility, just have it as one little checkoff item on, on a list of, you know, 30 other items that says, oh yeah, and by the way, yeah, you know, our, our website fully complies with all these security requirements. Our website complies with all these privacy requirements. It won't, we are not exporting, you know, uh, technologies outside the territorial boundaries of the United States, blah, 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 blah. We don't beat up on puppies and little children. And by the way, we fully meet WCAG 2.0. Um, that's, uh, and of course, a vendor is just going to be checked, you know, he's just going to be like barely paying attention to the requirements and checking things off. And so we all know what happens. Of course, they end up with an inaccessible website. Well, uh, I really appreciate those uh, insights that you just provided, uh, you know, as a, as a look to the future. And it was also really interesting to me to learn about how some of the things uh, uh, move forward uh, in the Justice Department. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time to share your uh, your knowledge and expertise with us. Yeah, thanks. And also, um, one little thing I forgot to mention is supposedly the Justice Department is coming up with regulations next year on Title II and web accessibility. So when they do, if, uh, yeah, definitely seek those um, seek that um, uh, draft regulation out because anybody can comment on a regulation and if no matter who they are you don't have to be a person who's directly affected by a regulation and they want to hear from you so they'll be hearing hey, from me that's a really good point as well so look look for that uh, sometime next year well uh, Thanks again, uh, Ken, and uh, hopefully we can meet up at, at one of those uh, events that you'd you'd mention in a physical sense sometime. Yeah, hopefully, once COVID's over. All right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. 
Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design. We can move existing designs to development in a sprint, and maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.